Hello, my name is Elena. Hi, my name is Valerie. My name is Brooke. My name is Chris. Welcome to Love Chapel Hill. And welcome to Love Chapel Hill. And welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission. Where our name is our mission. To love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. To love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. We're glad you're with us today. My name is Dr. Janie Phelps. I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist at UNC. More importantly, I'm a member of the Love Chapel Hill advisory team for regathering. I want to report that the advisory team unanimously supports regathering at this time. Now is a wonderful time for us to come back together as a church. North Carolina's infection rate is at 4.9%. However, Orange County's infection rate is at 0.8%. In addition, 49% of the eligible population of our county have been vaccinated. When we do come together, we are asking that we continue to practice social distancing and wear a mask. This will enable us to protect the unvaccinated members of our church as well as our children. If you are not vaccinated at this point and are eligible, I highly encourage you to become vaccinated. The vaccine is incredibly safe. If you need transportation, please contact any of our church leaders and they can help arrange transportation. The Friday Center has opened up vaccinations to walk-ins, so an appointment is not needed. And please listen out for the vaccine becoming el eligible for our children 12 and above. I'm hoping that's gonna occur within the next three to four weeks. And to all the mothers out there or all the women, happy Mother's Day. Even if you're not a biological mother, I have no doubt you've mothered somebody. So happy Mother's Day and I look forward to seeing everybody in person on May 23rd. Hi everyone, my name is Valerie and I'm from the Connections team at Love Chapel Hill. I'm here to invite you to fill out a Connect card at the link under the video or on our church's website, lovechapelhill.com. It helps us know you're out there and helps us find ways to better connect with you. Thank you. Hey, Love Chapel Hill, it's Brooke with Connections. I just wanted to let you know that we are still hosting the watch party every Sunday at 10 a.m. So if you wanna come and join us, please check out our website for more information to join us. We'll be hosting the watch party until May 23rd, which is the day that we will start to regather in person. But don't worry, if you can't yet come to regathering with us in person, we will still offer an online version of the service. So please make sure to be on the lookout for that information. We will offer that version for those of you who can't come in person or who don't feel comfortable yet joining us. So we hope to see you all on Sundays at 10 a.m. Hi, Love Chapel Hill family. My name is Rachel Walmer. I have the privilege of helping out with our children's ministry, Quest Kids, and want to invite your kids to join us. Whether your family has been coming to Love Chapel Hill for many years or you've recently started attending, we'd love to have your kids come hang out with us Learn more about Jesus and play games at Quest Kids on Sunday mornings. We have a fantastic group of kids and a great team of volunteers. At the moment, we are meeting virtually on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can't ask for better timing because while your kids are having a blast at Quest Kids, you're free to join the watch party. You can find more information on our church website or you can email questkids at lovechapelhill.com. We look forward to having your kids join us. Hey, Love Chapel Hill. Uh, the song that we're about to sing is called He Has Time, and we haven't done it here before. And so I just wanted to give a little bit of a context for the song before we do it. It has a lot to do with 
pain and suffering and trauma and just the path of healing that we as believers can go on with Jesus beside us. Um, really just the main theme of this song is that God is not in a rush and he has so much time for your healing. He has time to sit beside you. He has time to listen to your questions and your doubts and your anger and frustration. He's not telling you, oh, well, I sent Jesus on the cross so you can just get over that now. He is so empathetic. Um, and especially if you are someone who has been hurt by the church, we as Love Chapel Hill just want you to know that that was not of God. He does not cause suffering to his children or throw shame upon us. He is love. He is not just giving of love to those who deserve it. He literally is love. And so if there is anything that you want to reach out to us about, we could be praying with you. Matt can be praying with you. But I just invite you to join in worship in this song um, and to let Jesus in to process whatever you need to with him. Something's been stolen Under the weight of the curse you've been Not in a rush, he has time for 
I am able, I will see. 
Hey, Love Chapel Hill. We have two weeks left together in this series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've been walking through this gospel uh, intentionally together over the past several months. Uh, and these next two weeks, we're going to be looking at two teachings from Jesus to, to finish this up. Two teachings from Jesus that are connected to each other uh, by having this similar title. Uh, the first that we're looking at today is the Great Commandment. And then next week, we're going to look at the Great Commission to close this out the way that the gospel itself closes out. Next week, we'll be celebrating Ascension Sunday um, as Jesus ascends back to the Father uh, and sends his disciples out with that Great Commission. But today, we're going to be in the Great Commandment. Uh, it's a passage that is probably familiar to uh, quite a few of you. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, and we're going to read that together. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we find here in this passage, one of the most famous teachings of Jesus. We quote it frequently. We come back to it over and over again. And for us as a local church community, this is one of our core texts that we come back to intentionally. Um, and, and, and in this, we can recognize why this is such a famous, why this is such a core passage for so many people. This answer that Jesus gives to this question that's designed to trap him is absolutely brilliant, and it's brilliant on multiple levels. First, before we uh, get all the way into that, let's pull the lens back just a little bit and see that bigger picture uh, and to see this in some of the context of what is happening around it. So this is not just one question that Jesus gets from the religious leaders and the religious establishment uh, that are opposed to him and that have been standing in opposition to him, it feels like, at every turn throughout his ministry. Uh, but this is actually the third in a row of a similar kind of question, a controversy question that gets posed to Jesus that is specifically designed to trip him and to trap him in his words. And so the, the leaders are looking for this way uh, to expose Jesus and to trap Jesus. And so they come at him with multiple questions. And so we actually have two groups of religious leaders uh, who do not get along at all. There's a deep rivalry between these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, they see scripture differently. They see theology differently, but they see Jesus in a similar light. And so they are both opposed to Jesus. And so both of these groups are coming against Jesus with these questions. The first question that we get in this chapter comes from the Pharisees, and it's the question about paying taxes to Caesar. Um, you probably are familiar with this. This is another famous uh, answer that Jesus gives. They come to him and they say, uh, teacher, tell us, uh, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Uh, and they try to flatter him at the beginning and they say, we know that you're a teacher who knows the law, who knows God and speaks the word of God. 
And, but really, it's all designed to trap Jesus. Uh, as we know uh, that as the Jewish people are living in their land, but under the oppressive reign of the Roman Empire and under that occupation of the Roman Empire, uh, one of the things that was the most difficult for them and one of the most evident burdens that they faced every day and, and imminent burdens every day uh, was the weight of taxation from the Roman Empire. And so uh, that, that issue of taxes is this deeply uh, sensitive issue and painful issue for the Jewish people. And so when they ask Jesus this question, uh, they're pitting him against the people that he's been teaching and that he has this compassion towards and pitting him against the Roman Empire at the same time. And so if Jesus says, don't pay the taxes, then obviously that would be popular with the people. Uh, but it would be considered treason against the Roman Empire. So you can see how he's trapped here. And Jesus, in his brilliance, says, someone throw me a coin. And uh, he says, whose face is this on this coin? And they answer, it's Caesar's face. And he says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. In other words, it's Caesar's image that is stamped on the coin. Therefore, the coin belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him. But the image of God is stamped on you, that as a human being, you are created in the image of God. The very image of God is stamped on you. Therefore, give your whole self to God. Absolutely brilliant in the way Jesus answers this question. The second question comes from this other group, the Sadducees. And they asked Jesus a question about the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection. And that was part of that rivalry uh, and that ongoing theological debate between them and the Pharisees. Uh, and Jesus, again, brilliantly answers that question. And then that brings us now to this third question where Jesus is confronted about the commandments and about the law of God. And so they're hoping with this question that they can trap Jesus. It's designed to try to make Jesus possibly uh, elevate one element of the law over another. Uh, they can maybe blame him for overemphasizing one thing and then neglecting other parts of the law with this question or try to trip him up on some kind of theological technicality. And that's what they're out to do here, to undercut him in this moment. And Jesus delivers this brilliant answer that is so simple. And yet in that simplicity, we see the genius of Jesus on full display. St. Teresa of Avila said that the closer one draws to God, the more simple she becomes. And I think we see this embodied in the way Jesus, who is God, is able to take all of the law that people found so complicated, so burdensome in so many different ways, and he draws it all together in this one simple statement. It shows his genius and it shows his authority by bringing all of the feast and the fruit of the law and the prophets into one single seed bursting with potential harvest. And even that language that Jesus uses intentionally by saying all of the law and the prophets hang on these commands. 
that phrase is shorthand uh, to encompass everything that God had ever said, everything and anything that had come from God through his prophets, written through the law, through Moses, the whole sweep of the story of God's interaction with his people in this world. And so they often use that phrase, the law and the prophets. And Jesus says, all of it hangs on these two commands. So what we have here, we talked about this before, but we need to, to rest in this for a minute. What we have here, uh, it, it's, it's not two separate commands. These aren't two separate commands. Uh, this is one command. And these two pieces of it cannot be separated out. Uh, as we've said before, uh, loving God and loving others, those aren't two separate commands. They're one command uh, in the same way that we think about breathing, right? And so we've used this example in this image of breathing. And so you could ask the question, well, which is more important to love God or to love others? And it would be like asking, which is more important to breathe in or to breathe out? If you're not doing both, then pretty soon you won't be doing either. It's both of them together uh, that make up the reality of Christian breathing. This is life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. To love God in this all-encompassing way with all that we have and all that we are and to love others as ourselves. So we talk about it as two in one, but really... It's more like 10 in one because in pulling these two together into one command, what Jesus ends up doing is he brings in all of the 10 commandments and you can go right through the 10 commandments and you can see that the first four uh, are related to what it looks like to love God with your whole self. And then the second six are what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus brilliantly brings it all together in this, the whole law encompassed in what he says, but not just the law. He also says that all of the prophets are encompassed in this as well. We've talked repeatedly about this thread that runs all the way through the prophets of righteousness and justice. Righteousness being a right relationship with God justice being a right relationship with each other and how that's this repeated inescapable theme throughout all of the prophets is this anthem and this banner that they carry and here we see all of that tied together in what Jesus tells us in the great commandment to love God is righteousness and to love others is justice and we're called to do both if we're not doing both pretty soon we won't be doing either. As Jesus draws from the Hebrew Bible and from what we refer to as the Old Testament, uh, from the law in this moment, uh, at the, the first part of this command, he reaches specifically uh, not to the list of the Ten Commandments, but he actually reaches for something known as the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Uh, and it begins with this statement of, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And it's this beautiful prayer. Uh, it's called the Shema because uh, the word uh, for here in Hebrew is Shema. And so it's known as that, that first word from the prayer. 
and it was so ingrained in the lives of the people. Um, Every morning, they began their day by praying this prayer. And at night, they ended the day by praying this prayer. It was the bookend of every day. It was the orientation of every single day. It's how they began and it's how they ended. It was ingrained in them. And Jesus is saying, you know what the great commandment is. You've been praying it every day of your life. It's been setting the rhythm and the motions of your life. It's ingrained in you. It's this beautiful prayer that tells us that the whole self has to be dedicated to God. Those words of heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, We realize that the Shema uh, from Deuteronomy is written in Hebrew. So we have that language. As Jesus is quoting it, Jesus is speaking Aramaic. So now we have a different language entering in there. And as Matthew is recording it, uh, that's written in Greek. And so we have another language. And now we're reading it through an English translation, right? So we have all of these languages that this is moving through to get to us. And with all of these languages, uh, there are ways in which these words have overlap. And there are ways in which these different words uh, have differences in how they are seen by not just language, but also culture of time and place. What's most important here is not the way that we see the differences between how those words are understood in languages and cultures. What's most important and what is captured in all of them is the reality that what's being communicated here is an all-encompassing love of God with the entire self, with the entire self. There's no compartmentalization that is happening here. It's a full, all-out surrender. It is a yes over our entire lives when it comes to our love for God. The second part of that command when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, That's also not found in the Ten Commandments, uh, even though it's part of encompassing all of the Ten Commandments. He pulls that from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And what's really interesting about that and challenging to us is uh, that in that passage in Leviticus and in that chapter there, um, we get this description of these commands of what it looks like to love each other, what it looks like to be in a right relationship with each other. And in that same chapter, um, as we get this description of loving our neighbor as ourselves, in that same chapter, we're also challenged not just to love the neighbor, but to understand that for God's people, even the foreigner among them was to be seen as a neighbor. And they're told in that very chapter, in that very passage where Jesus brings this command out of, we're told there that the definition of neighbor must be expanded beyond our natural definition and it includes every person that we come into contact with, even the foreigner or the stranger among us as it's sometimes translated. In this time in which it was natural to see the foreigner as an enemy, Yahweh says, my people will see the foreigner not as an enemy, but as a neighbor. And so Jesus, in borrowing that, expands once again the definition of what it means to love the neighbor 
and what it means to love all people around us. So another challenge that we find here is not just in expanding the definition of, of, of neighbor, uh, but of looking at that whole statement that Jesus makes and the reality that it's not only the neighbor who is loved and it's not only God who is loved, but how are we told to love our neighbor? Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that statement assumes a love for yourself. It is embedded in that. Now, when we say that, we're not talking about uh, being self-centered or being self-serving. But what we mean is that we have to come to this realization and to recognize that we are loved by God. And we have to begin to see that as the defining reality of who we are, the defining reality of our lives, that we are loved by God. For many of us, if we loved our neighbors simply as we love ourselves in our own strength, if we just loved our neighbor as we love ourselves, then we would be anything but loving to our neighbors. If we treated our neighbors the way that we treat ourselves, then we would neglect our neighbors. We would loathe our neighbors. We would blame our neighbors for all of the relationships in our lives uh, that are crumbling. Uh, We would heap shame on our neighbors because of things from their past. Uh, We would believe every lie whispered in our minds and in our hearts about our neighbors. We would undercut our neighbors. We would demand perfection from our neighbors. If we loved our neighbors as we love ourselves, and for many of us, the way we treat our neighbors would look like anything but love. That's part of the beauty and the compelling beauty of the great work of the love of God that gets accomplished in our lives through the work of Jesus Christ, through the power, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit is that grace and love of God accomplishes in us this ability to be able to see ourselves as loved, to know ourselves as loved by God. Watchman Nee was one of the uh, great leaders of the underground church movement in China Uh, and the oppression that that church faced there. He was imprisoned uh, and ended up spending the last days of his life in prison. But he writes this and it comes to us here and now. And he says, the cross is the end of our old history and the resurrection is the beginning of our new future. Some of us need to hear that. The cross is the end of your old history. The resurrection is the beginning of your new future. You are a new person in Jesus Christ. He is transforming everything about you. And part of what is getting transformed is the way that you see and understand and know and accept yourself as the beloved child of God. That is the defining reality of who you are. And the cross tells us that. That's who you are. And that is what you are worth to him. You must come to terms in your life 
with the reality of love. You must come to terms with the reality of love. His love absolutely empowers us to love him. Scripture tells us that we love him because he first loved us. So it's his love that empowers us to love him. It's his love that empowers us to love other people. If we're trying to do that out of our own strength, it's always going to come up empty and shallow and run dry. And in the same reality, we, his love empowers us to begin to love ourselves as counterintuitive as that may seem to the reality that we're in right now and to everything that is in your mind and in your heart and soul right now, to everything that you're hearing about yourself and that the lies that you are buying into about yourself. We have to come to terms with the reality of love. We have to allow ourselves to receive his love and to receive his grace and to receive the gift of his assurance that we are his and he is ours and he is not going anywhere. And we are not losing this. He will not lose his grip on us. You might push back on this in a couple of ways. You might say, well, when Jesus talks about the great commandment, he's encompassing all of the Ten Commandments there. And I don't see anything in the Ten Commandments about loving yourself. There doesn't seem to be a commandment that's focused on that. And my pushback would be this. Take a look at the command about the Sabbath. Absolutely, it's about remembering the Sabbath day and it's about loving God. It's about remembering who God is But in that Sabbath command, we're being pressed not just to remember who God is, but to remember who we are in Him. Remember, it's tied up in the Genesis story, Genesis 1 and 2. And we're being pressed in the Sabbath to remember that we're created in the image of God. That's who we are. And we belong to him. We are his. We are his children. It's also tied up in the Exodus story. And we're being pressed to remember that our worth is not found in what we can produce. That we are not enslaved. We are children. We are his. And he invites us into the freedom and rest of relationship with him. And on that Sabbath day, we're commanded to pause and to remember and to receive the gift of being his beloved children. Self-care is not self-centered or self-serving. It is self-knowing. It is self-accepting of his love for us. That's what that is about. And again, you might push back and you might say, well, Jesus commanded us. It's so clear that Jesus commanded us to deny ourselves. So why are you talking about loving yourself when the command of Jesus is to deny ourselves and to take up the cross? And again, to that, I would say exactly, absolutely. That's what Jesus commands, to deny ourselves and to take up the cross. But what is the cross? What does the cross mean What is the symbol of the cross all about except the extent of God's abundant love for you? Take up the cross and remember the extent of his love for you. Yes, you're going to be called in denying yourself to deny your privileges, to deny your preferences, to deny your possessions. 
and as many in our history and currently around the world, and maybe some of us, maybe even asked to deny our own lives for the sake of the cause of Jesus. But he will never ask you to deny God's love for you. That's not denying yourself. That's denying God. And that's nothing short of sin. In this command, we have the assumption embedded and built in. We're being challenged here by Jesus to love ourselves and to recognize that the love of God heals relationships, even the most difficult relationship of all, possibly the relationship we have with ourselves. So I want to challenge you today, the person who's wrestling with that, keep that boundary, take that rest, say no or say not now, go to that counselor, raise that hand and ask for help, ask for a break, ask for rest. Give yourself permission to rest, give yourself permission to heal, give yourself permission to belong to the belovedness of God. Thank you for letting me do that. Uh, over the next uh, couple of months, over the summer, taking a respite and pulling back from some of the church responsibilities. Thank you for embracing that and encouraging that in me. And if you need to use me uh, as permission to do that yourself, then please take it, raise your hand and ask for help. So this all-encompassing love that we get described here in the great commandment is this golden thread that holds all of scripture together, Jesus tells us. It holds all of the history of God's interaction with humanity. It holds all of the future of that as well, all tied up in this one commandment. We see the apostle John go on to write this, not just in his gospel and describing the gospel as God so loved the world, but also in his letters talking about this as the root of what life in Christ looks like and the root of the character of God and the character of Jesus. The apostle Paul, it's all the way through his letters and he quotes Jesus on this as the fulfillment of the law is to love God and love your neighbor. Uh, James writes this in his New Testament letter as well, describing love as the royal law and the royal Way The African bishop and great theologian of the early church, Augustine, says that the essence of sin is disordered love. It's love in the wrong places. And then John Wesley later answers that by describing holiness as the essence of love, that the essence of holiness is Love And throughout his ministry, Wesley consistently is preaching about holiness and he's preaching about sanctification. And those biblical terms and those theological terms are often difficult to get our minds around. And sometimes when you speak on those things, it can be confusing for the people around you. So people would come to him and ask for clarification. When you say holiness, what do you mean? When you say sanctification, what do you mean? And he consistently and unswervingly pointed back to this moment in scripture, to Jesus's words here, to the great commandment. And he said, that is what I mean. That is holiness. I mean, nothing more than that. And I mean, nothing less than all encompassing love for God and love your neighbor as yourself. He challenged people 
that if when you say you desire more of God, if you mean anything than more of his love, of his love for you and his love for others through you, then you have looked wide of the mark, he said, and you have gotten out of the royal way. The heavens of heavens is love, he said. And then one of our own prophets, more close to our own time here in our own country, out of the south here, said that hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. These words of Jesus have inspired the church throughout the generations, and they continue to point to a beautiful future for the church. If we will live this out, surrendered and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But we've got to realize that for all of its genius here, for all of its inspiration, for all of its resonance with the world that we long to see become a reality all around us, we have to realize that these words from Jesus do not come to us from a moment of achieved utopia or spiritual vision or some desert experience or even from a lakeside hill while, he, while he's preaching the Sermon of, on the Mount. This does not come from the Sermon on the Mount. This comes to us in Matthew chapter 22. And why is it important that we find this in Matthew chapter 22? Because of what we find in Matthew chapter 21. And in Matthew chapter 21, what happens before Jesus says these words, we get chapter 21 beginning with the triumphal entry where Jesus begins the last week of his life as he makes his way towards the cross and he enters Jerusalem there in the triumphal entry, riding on that donkey as a symbol that he is the Messiah and the long-awaited king of the Jews, which was blasphemy to the religious leaders and treason to the Roman Empire. This is not Jesus sitting on a hillside somewhere talking about poetry. This is Jesus with the cross coming quickly into view and his own death looming over him. Also in Matthew chapter 21, we get what's called the temple incident. And I find it funny that it's just referred to as the temple incident. Anytime something gets called an incident, you know it's not a good thing. This is where Jesus goes into the temple and he's flipping the tables because of his anger over the twisted worship practices that are bringing about oppression for the poor. And he will not have it. This is not just Jesus, gentle and humble in heart that we see in so many other places. This is Jesus in that full righteous anger over oppression and twisted worship practices. Then immediately after the temple incident, we get the withering of a fig tree where Jesus goes up to this fig tree because he's hungry and he goes to pick a fig off of it and he sees that the leaves are in bloom and are flowering, but the tree has no fruit on it. And so he curses it and it withers. What's the symbolism of that? It's putting forth this image that it's alive and it's healthy and yet it's not bearing any fruit. And so he curses it and it withers. Why is that important? Because the fig tree was a symbol of the religious leadership of Israel. And so by cursing that, it's as if he were cursing the religious leaders and saying to them, you've got all the signs of righteousness and justice. You've got no fruit 
on the branches and I won't stand for it. This is the context in which Jesus gives us this command. On the other side of Matthew chapter 22, we have the seven woes where Jesus is uh, critiquing and provoking uh, and speaking prophetic, prophetically against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Then we get the Last Supper soon after that. We get Jesus being betrayed by one of his own disciples. We get Jesus denied by Peter. We get Jesus put on trial. We get Jesus tortured and mocked and ultimately crucified. That's the context in which this command is given, in which Jesus is talking about love. If we ever think that the love of God is weak, if we ever think that it's weak and shallow to talk about the love of God, remember the context in which Jesus gives this command. With days left in his ministry, with days left before he goes to the cross, he says, I want to sum it all up with this. Love God with all you have and all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. So what should we do with this? What should we do with this command? Well, we should live in it until it lives in us and lives its way out of us. I want to challenge you to over the next month to begin your day and to end your day by quoting this command by quoting this passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 22. And quote, you can just memorize that one command, but begin your day with it as this way of setting the orientation for everything that you do and say and think and how you live for the day. And at the end of the day, say it again as a reminder and as a way of sealing the day and asking God to give you a new beginning in that the next day. This is something that I try to practice uh, with my kids. Uh, one of the things I love to do is that I get to drive my boys to school in the morning. And so as you guys know, I have twin sons, Luke and Sam. They're nine years old right now. They're in third grade. And uh, now that we're back to in-person school, we've got this rhythm going again where I get to drive them to school. And I love this ritual in our day and this, this rhythm in our day. And on the way to school, we're going to talk about anything from basketball to baseball to Pokemon cards uh, to Nintendo. Uh, recently, the question got asked whether I thought Michael Jordan was going to show up in the new Space Jam or not. Very important questions like that. Also, a lot of time devoted to uh, trying to create some peace treaties in the back seat. All right. Uh, and so this is the kind of conversation that we have on the way to school. But it always ends in the same way. As we pull into the carpool lane there and the drop-off line at the school, uh, I try to end every drive by praying over them. And every day I pray the same thing. I pray two things. First, I pray the great commandment over them. And I ask that God would teach them to love him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love their neighbors as themselves. And then secondly, we pray the fruit of the Spirit that the fruit of the Spirit would grow in them and would be seen in them and would be experienced by the people who are around them. Uh, recently, I asked them if they knew what those things were called. I said, you know, we pray the same thing every day. You guys know that, right? They're like, yeah, we know it. And they kind of rolled their eyes. And, and whenever we start it, sometimes they're like, all right, yeah, we know this. Uh, but I asked them if they knew what that was called. I, I said, uh, 
to, uh, to them. I said, do you know what, what that is? One of them is called the fruit of the, and Luke says, the spirit. I'm like, yes, all right, you got it. And then the other one I said is called the great, and Luke says, barrier reef. Close, <laughs> but not quite. All right. Uh, at least he's listening to somebody about something. Um, but I want to just keep praying that over them every day so that it becomes ingrained in them. I want it to become a part of who they are. I want to pray it over them until it is a prayer that is in them, until they become shaped by it, until they begin to believe it, and until they begin to live it, until they become that reality. That's my prayer for them, until it becomes so natural for them that it's like breathing in, and breathing out. That's my prayer for them, and that's my prayer for you too, and my prayer for us as a church community, that we would live this, that it would live in us, and we would live in it until it lived in us, that we would not try to separate these two, but that we would recognize that sometimes the best way to love our neighbor is to love God fully. And the best way to love God is to love our neighbors as ourselves. I know you get that because I've seen you live that. I have seen you embody this commandment, loving God and loving other people. I've seen it over and over again. And I especially want to encourage you in the ways that I've seen it over this past year. Over this past year, you have loved each other. You have put other people in front of yourselves, even when it has been difficult, painful, not just inconvenient, but costly. I've seen you care for people uh, by delivering meals to them. I've seen you volunteer uh, to donate uh, the, the stimulus checks that have come as relief from the government and you pass them on to people that you think need it worse than you. I've seen you uh, show up for your friends who are experiencing homelessness to continue to be a presence for them, to make sure that they don't feel like the bridge between us has collapsed so that they know that they're seen and that they are heard and that they are loved. Even one of our college students is uh, volunteering to donate what's left as part of her uh, dining plan and the finances that are left on her dining plan in order to give a nice meal uh, to some of our friends who are experiencing homelessness. And if that's against university policies, then I didn't say which university and she's graduating anyway, so it's too late. But I've seen this over and over again and I'm so moved by it and I'm so grateful. Many of my friends who are in ministry look back on this past year and they see it as a time in which they've been deeply discouraged, in which they felt attacked by people that they're trying to love. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of the church staff for the way that you have loved so well, for the way that you have supported each other and you've supported your pastors. You are a beautiful picture of what it looks like to love God fully and to love your neighbor as yourself.
like I know a friend I want to know you Hello, Love Chapel Hill. I'm Bob. Thanks so much for worshiping with us this week. To talk about the Great Commandments, I want to talk about tennis. 
Tennis is a game I started playing when I was about 11 years old. I played on my high school team and I played as a young adult. And then I stopped playing right around the time my wife Vicky and I started having a family. Well, about three and a half years ago, I picked up tennis again, and I'm so glad I did. Tennis is great for my heart. It's a great form of exercise. Tennis is great for my mind. There are lots of decisions to make, which shot to hit, how hard to hit it. And tennis is great for my soul. I feel great joy. I laugh all the time on the court with my friends. Then I had this moment about a year after I started coming to Love Chapel Hill. I was playing a doubles match and I walked up to the service line and just before I hit my serve, this thought flashed through my mind. The thought was, this is not enough. I was amazed. I was having a great time on a beautiful day and it hit me. There's a greater joy even than playing tennis. And it's the first time I really felt like I knew what it meant to love God with all my heart and all my mind and on my soul. And I owe that to my time here at Love Chapel Hill. There's a second part to the commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's easy to think that means we need to love our neighbors just as much as we love ourselves, but it can work the other way around too. We don't always love ourselves a lot. There's a guy I play tennis with named Doug. Doug is a really good guy with a great sense of humor, but when Doug makes a mistake, he gets all over himself. And one time as he was berating himself for another mistake, I just said to him, hey, would you cut it out? You don't want to talk to anybody else the way you talk to yourself. Give yourself a break. I don't think I changed Doug's behavior, but my point is that we need to love ourselves too. As you move through the coming week, pay attention to what you say to yourself and how, do you, how you feel about yourself. Do you love yourself as much as you love your neighbor? And do you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? Have a great week. Thank you.